I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, April 20th, 2012. Today we finish up listening to the uh, contestants for this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. <laughs> and I, you know, I couldn't... Uh, couldn't be happier that we're at the end of it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically help you to think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy, bizarre things being said out there, and we do the comparative work so that you can determine whether or not you're being taught the truth. True Christianity, biblical, the biblical gospel, are being comforted with the good news of what Christ has done for you, or if you're being terrorized and deceived by false doctrine, a false reading of Scripture, and pastors who have no business being pastors because they don't know how to rightly handle the word of truth. By the way, that is one of the qualifications for somebody in the pastoral office, is that they must be able to rightly handle, rightly divide God's word, and to teach it properly, and teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. If that man cannot do that, then he's actually not qualified to be a pastor. Something to keep in mind. Okay, what we're going to do today, I'm kind of looking at my time here and what I have on the docket. I didn't get a chance yesterday. Uh, the program was was just filled to brimming, and I did not get an opportunity to uh, do the piece that I wanted to do regarding David Barton. We're going to get to that today. Um, what we're going to do, though, let, let's kind of talk about how we're going to do today's program. We're going to start off today's program with a montage, and it's not really, it's kind of like, it's not a good montage. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It's a, it's a poorly produced montage, and it, and the reason why I say that is, is that normally when somebody puts a montage together of sound bites and things like that, the, 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 the clips are short. They're, they're, they're brief. And I couldn't bring myself to do that. Um, I wanted you to hear a sampling from some of the sermons that came really close 
to being put on the air uh, uh, in this year's uh, Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, but they, for one reason or another, they did not make the cut. But uh, I wanted you to hear some of the more memorable things that were said in there. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do, it's not really a, a, a montage of a lot of different sermons. There's three in particular that I wanted you to hear pieces of. Number one, uh, a sermon from Mike Snow, uh, his Easter sermon, which was, oh man, <laughs> it had like a classic Easter problem in it. Um, uh, and then uh, the, uh, the man who brought us such f- memorable terms as think be do and the Mariachi Trench, yeah, <laughs> Keith Kraft of Elevate Life Church at the Cathedral of Frisco. Um, yeah, I wanted you to hear a portion of his Easter sermon. And then we're going to head on over to Seattle. Uh, Judah Smith, who's good friends with uh, Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, and guys like that. Uh, Judah Smith, his Easter sermon was entitled, Jesus is Bringing Sexy Back. And, um, you know, <laughs> just, you know, hey, you know, let's, let's see, you know, sex sells, so I have an idea. Let's combine Easter and sex, and, you know, we'll pack them in for Easter. Yeah, that uh, great guy. So those those are the three that we're going to be listening to that I, I consider to be honorable mentions but like I said, for one reason or another, they did not make the cut. Uh, that being the case, I should announce who is going to be our final contestant this year. Now, I, I was kind of going back through who've, who's won in the past. Uh, Joel Osteen's won in the past. Rob Bell has run in the, uh, won in the past. So has Ian Lawton. And so, you know, this is, a, the, I got to tell you, this entry uh, for the Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest could be one of those dark horse runners. So if those of you out there who are, are you know, wagering money on who's going to win this year's contest. Now, by the way, I, I, I should let you all know that that is contraindicated. We do not condone uh, any of you out there uh, betting on the who's going to be the winner for the worst Easter sermon of the year as if somehow this is some kind of a horse race. But... <laughs> Sometimes I wonder why I say these things. Anyway, uh, but uh, so today's uh, today's contestant, uh, the final contestant for your consideration, is uh, Shane Hips. He's the man who has inherited the head teaching pastor position at Rob Bell's church, a former church. He's Rob Bell's moved to Southern California, but up in Grand Rapids, Mars Hill Bible Church. Shane Hips uh, preached an Easter sermon that. Um, the only way I can describe it is is that it absolutely frustrated me because um, his deceptive tactic is, you know, it, it's pretty easy to spot if you know what you're looking for. My concern is is that the folks there having, you know, you know, spent a long time listening to the teaching of Rob Bell are ill-equipped to spot the technique that he used to mangle the resurrection story. And, uh, by the way, the name of his uh, Easter sermon is Tomb to Womb. Go figure. I, You know, you'll have to figure it out as we go along. So what we're going to do, we're going to start off with our montage of sermons that didn't make the cut. When we come back from the break, we're going to spend some time... Um, Picking something apart that uh, that uh, Dave Barton uh, recently did at the Rediscover God in America uh, simul- sim- simulcast. I don't know. It's this broadcast all over the place? And uh, in and you know, I'll I'll make the point when we get there. But I'll kind of give you a pre-point to the point. I kind of hinted at it yesterday, and that is this: 
is that if we're going to have any credibility as Christians, you know, you know, as as a voice, you know, you know, in American politics or whatever, uh, we need to say things that can be substantiated and not make the kinds of unsubstantiated false claims that Dave Barton made at the Rediscover God in America simulcast. What he did was embarrassingly awful as far as, I mean, seriously, it was $3 plastic banana Clintonian. It was that bad. I mean, it was it was absolutely Clintonian. I'm using that term to be provocative because, uh, you know, those of us who uh, survive the Clinton administration here in the United States know perfectly well that Clinton, um, you can always tell he was lying when his lips were moving. Well, unfortunately, Dave Barton engaged in the type of really scummy lying tactics that uh, Bill Clinton is known for in his uh, Rediscover God in America lecture. And uh, we're going to pick this apart and uh, basically call Dave Barton to clean up his act and to repent of his mangling of God's word to support his particular political agenda. And, uh, you know, you understand what I'm saying. So we're going to do that today, and then obviously we'll get into our sermon review in hour number two. So make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and I, I don't have any music to segue into this. And so the, the best way I can put it is is that these are the sermon, the Easter sermons that were so close, so close to, well, being put forward for your consideration for the coveted title of Worst Easter Sermon of 2012. But they, for one reason or another, didn't actually make the cut, and therefore you will not have the opportunity to vote on them. But they will be receiving honorable mention by me playing, well, a portion of some of what it is that they said in these tragically flawed backwards um, attempts at an Easter sermon. So uh, to begin with, we've got uh, Mike Snow of um, Grace Point Church up in uh, Kansas, and uh, in, well, his Easter sermon uh, entitled Rolling Stones. And yes, they did play Rolling Stones music on Easter Sunday there at Grace Point Church. You can find this at gracepointchurch.tv. Here's Mike Snow. Grace Pointers! How's everybody doing? Oh, come on. We're talking about Easter Sunday, people. Let's make some noise for what Jesus did. He defeated death. The obligatory give Jesus a round of applause. He rose from the grave. And he defeated, he defeated, he defeated. Here's what I love. You're sitting there thinking, rolling stones on Easter. How in the world did I get so lucky? I love it when God, like we make plans, but then he takes them to a whole nother level. That's a line stolen from Ed Young. For many of you, you don't know that we have three campuses. We have this campus packed out. We have a campus over at... The obligatory talking about all the different multi-sites. Hillside and Lincoln packed out. And then we have a campus down in Fayetteville, Arkansas, on the campus of the University of Arkansas. And it's packed out. Sweet! And earlier this morning, as our pastors were getting ready to pray, 
we called our pastor down there, Mike Felder, and we said, hey, what are you doing? We had him on speakerphone, and he said, well, I'm just spraying down some of the dressing rooms that we put together. They were smoking weed in it last night. <laughs> See, they meet at a bar. They meet at the baddest, coolest bar that's down there. It's called George's Majestic Lounge. And how fitting is it? Thank you. Real quick, I just want to say, let's all pray together. God, thank you for your sermon illustrations. Amen. And so, it is so amazing to know that last night they were getting stoned on the weed. Today, we're getting stoned on the Holy Spirit. Uh, huh, yeah, and comparing um, the Holy Spirit to an uh, illegal narcotic substance. Lovely. Rolling the stones away. Rolling the stones away in a packed house. And so today I want us all to just kind of take a little bit of a deep breath. And all I want is 15 minutes for us to talk about what God did through His Son, Jesus Christ, on a cross. Death, burial, resurrection. He defeated death, giving us an opportunity to receive Him and live life to the full. Live a life that... Uh-oh. Yeah, so an opportunity to receive Him so we can live life to the full. Oh, boy. We can have these stones rolled away out of our lives. All those things that separate us from God's plan that we put up. And so here's what I want to do. So we can have stones rolled away from our lives. You know, these are the things that separate us from the fantastically cool plan that God has for our lives. So there's, you see, you know, because, see, that's the thing. Is, you know, they, they took Jesus' dead body, put it in a tomb, right? You know, this is what happened to poor Jesus. And, of course, you know, when he raised again from the dead on the third day, there was that stone in the way of Jesus' being able to experience the full life that God the Father had intended of. And so he, he rolled away the stone in order to walk then into the fullness of the life that God the Father had for him in order to give us an example that we need to follow. So when those stones come up in our lives that keep us back from the full life that God intended for us because we're so super-duper special, you know, um, that, you know, we need to follow the example of Jesus and roll those stones out of our lives, just like he did in his. <laughs> Wow, is that ridiculous. I want to talk about God's plan. I want to talk about four stones that can be rolled away in our life. If we would just simply open our hearts up, open our minds, let Him have control, and let Him roll these stones away. The first one is so big, it wouldn't even fit on the stone. It's the stone of discouragement. It says, Yeah, is the stone of discouragement there in your life separating you from God? Well, you, you better go get that stone of discouragement and roll it away. Discourage, go with it. <laughs> it's so big in our lives. And by the way, he's holding a big stone that somebody had taken a Sharpie marker to, and it's written on, written on the stone. It says, Discouragement. It wouldn't fit 
It separates us from God's plan, from what God wants to do for us. He wants to remove the discouragement in our lives, okay? Yeah, you see, you know, discouragement. It, see, it used to be taught in Christian churches that it's our sin that separates us from God, our rebellion against Him, the fact that uh, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and disobeyed Him in the Garden of Eden, that every one of us was born dead in trespasses and sins and inherited from our first parents our sinful nature. That makes us born dead in trespasses and sins, at war with God, objects of God's wrath. But no, no, no. The new way the purpose-driven gospel is being taught is, is that no, it's not it's, no sin. You don't want to talk about it that way. No, it's it's the discouragement is what separates us from God. So we need to learn how to roll that stone away because that's what Jesus was doing on Easter Sunday, setting an example for us to follow. All of us ask three questions. We ask, "Who am I? Why am I here?" And where am I going? For many of us, we wander around every single day. And even some of the things that we thought were going to bring us peace, that we thought were going to bring us happiness and contentment, they don't. And even if they do, they do it for a very short amount of time. There's only one thing. I don't care what situation you're in. I don't care what the situation is in your marriage. I don't care what the situation is in your school. I don't care what age you are. You do not have to live a life separated from God's plan because you are discouraged. There's discouragement in your life. You don't have to accept it. As a matter of fact, seriously, you, you, you don't have to go through life being separated from God's plan because of discouragement. You have got to be kidding me. In God's plan, it's completely removed. It's completely removed. And what happens is, he puts the plan in place, and it gets washed away. And he just threw that stone into a large tub of water. And apparently, discouragement now has been washed away. Wow. Yeah, who knew that discouragement is the thing that separates us from God's great plan for our lives? I, I had no idea about that. But that's soundbite number one from our... Montage that isn't much of a montage, but you know we're taking th you know segments from the sermons that didn't make it in this for this year's Easter contest. Well, and well, number two comes to us via the Cathedral of uh, Frisco, the man who brought us such great um, things as the Mariachi Trench and the phrase "Think Be Do." Um, it comes Keith Craft and his uh, Easter sermon entitled "C." That's S E E, not S E A. Um, yeah, here's. Part of that. Here's Keith Craft. We're honored to have you at the Cathedral of Frisco. Come on, let's give God a big one more big hand. Come on. An Illinois man left Chicago for a vacation in Florida. His wife was on a business trip and was planning to meet him the next day. When he reached his hotel, he decided to send his wife a quick email. Unable to find the scrap of paper on which he had written her email address, he did his best to type it from memory. Everybody say men. <laughs> Unfortunately, he missed one letter, and his note was directed instead to an elderly preacher's wife whose husband had just passed away the day before. When the grieving widow checked her email, she took one look at the monitor, let out a piercing scream, and fell to the floor dead. At that sound, her family rushed into the room and saw the note on the screen. Dearest wife, 
just got checked in. Everything is prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Your loving husband. P.S. Sure is hot down here. What could be more powerful than the news from the other side that says Jesus is no longer dead, but he's alive. That's what Easter does for us. From the other side. I thought Jesus came back from the other side. Gives us news from the other side. It's not an email message, but it's a living message. It's not a message from a man, but it's a message from God. It's not a message from hell, but it's a message from heaven. It is the best news in all of history. He is risen. Come on. He is risen. Easter is the time that we celebrate that the stone that sealed the life and the love of God has been rolled away. That our hopes are alive in the resurrection of Jesus. I want to talk to you today for a few minutes about what I'm calling the sea of hope. The sea of hope. That's what he's calling it, the S-E-E of hope. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is about hope. Albert Einstein, who was an agnostic, never claimed to be an atheist, but just didn't, you know, just couldn't kind of buy into the whole God thing. In his lifetime, he thought maybe through mathematics and otherwise that he could find proof of God's existence. And a lot of people don't know this about Albert Einstein, but he spent much of his life trying to prove the existence of God. And in his own mind, in his own journey, he would make statements like this. Learn from yesterday, live for today, and hope for tomorrow. Hope for tomorrow. Norman Cousins says this, the capacity for hope is the most significant fact of life. It provides human beings with a sense of destination and the energy to get started. In fact, hope is the one force that we don't think about until we don't have it. You see, your hope can go just like that. No, that's terrible. Who knew? Something can happen in your life that literally takes the wind out of your sails. It takes the hope out of your heart that you didn't even know that you needed to have in your heart. <laughs> I had no idea I needed it. I mean, that's like saying, you know, you know, maybe hope's like gasoline to a car engine. You know, how do you expect your car to run without gasoline? So if without hope, you can't, you know, go on. Life's tragedies and life's harsh days and things happen that cause us to be awakened that how much we need hope. You never know how much you need hope until you don't have hope. In his last Christmas Eve sermon, before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King preached about his dream. That his dream had been turned into a nightmare in the church bombing in Birmingham. Since he announced his dream, poverty had gotten worse. During his lifetime, the war in Vietnam, in fact, this dream that he began to talk about, and this dream that people began to buy into, didn't seem to be going forward at all. It seemed to be going backwards. He said this as he closed his message on Christmas Eve. 
Yes, I'm personally the victim of deferred dreams. And I want to stop right there for just a minute before I go on with what else he said, is that we are victims of deferred dreams. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, you can see where this one's going. Yeah, you're a victim of deferred dreams. In fact, you may want to check in the mariachi trench to see if that's where they are, you know, because they may be sitting there at the bottom, you know, 11 kilometers down. Have you ever had a dream that didn't work out? Yes, I have. Have you ever had hopes for somebody that it didn't work out? Yes. It, yes. He said, I'm a victim of my own deferred dreams. I have no idea what this has to do with Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead for our sins and justification. But okay, I'll roll with it. Of my blasted hopes, the things that I hope for don't seem like that they're coming to pass. But in spite of that, I close tonight by saying, I still have a dream. We should all stand at that. It sounds like an applause line to me. Because you know you cannot give up on life. If you lose hope, somehow you lose that vitality that keeps life moving. You lose that courage to be that quality that helps you to go on in spite of it all. And it's I, I think the guy should be a speechwriter for Obama. His final statement that night he said, and so today, I still have a dream. I want to ask you a question. What's happened in your life? <laughs> My dream got sunk down to the Mariachi Trench. Are you a victim of deferred dreams? Well, it may be that your dreams are sitting at the bottom of the Mariachi Trench. Have you thought about that? Well, Pirate Christian Radio would like to offer a brand new service to help you bring your dreams up from the bottom so that you can not have to live your life with hopeless hopelessness. Because um, this is all part of our think-be-do, take-action approach to dealing with those who are victims of deferred dreams. So if you would like us to help you extract your dreams from the bottom of the Mariachi Trench, just contact us at dreamrescue at piratechristianradio.com. Dream Rescue at PirateChristianRadio.com. We will be happy to help you retrieve your dreams that have been deferred, that are probably sitting 11 kilometers under at the bottom of the Mariachi Trench. <laughs> I have no idea what this guy's talking about. What's happened in you? That it would steal your hope, that it would steal your dreams, that it would blast you out of the waters of hope that you didn't even know that you were in. I've got some good news and some bad news. Please, share. If you've had something like that in your life that has just caused you to, I'm talking about, some of you know what I'm talking about, that at the depth of your being, hope left. Here's the good news. Okay. You're not the only one in the room that's ever felt like that. Wow, that's just comforting and reassuring. 
I said, here's the good news. You're not the only one in the room that's felt like that. Oh, sorry. We're supposed to applaud. Here's the that. bad news. If you haven't had something that's hit you that hard, mm -hmm. it will. That's terrible. Thanks for the warning. So uh, <laughs> that's a sampling of the uh, <clears throat> Easter message that was shared by, well, Keith Kraft of Elevate Life, Cathedral of uh, Frisco. And um, I have no idea what on earth he was talking about. And last but not least of the sermons that didn't quite make the cut this year, although the, I'm giving him an honorable mention, uh, here's Judah Smith from the City Church up there in Seattle, Washington, and his um, Easter sermon entitled, Jesus is Bringing Sexy Back. Turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 16. It's there. We have been looking at a story about a man named Samson and his girlfriend who's from a valley whose name is Delilah. Delilah. That's right. Let me give you a quick background as we jump into Judges chapter 16. We are looking at six different words in this passage. This, of course, originally written in the Hebrew language. We're looking at six Hebrew words, and I'm calling them the six stages of sexual compromise, sexual perversion, or bondage. Of course, we are defining perversion. You know what's weird is that I'm I'm just telling you, as somebody who used to work at Focus on the Family, who knew, well, I, I know the Dobsons personally, um, and remembered uh, Dr. James Dobson when he was much younger than he is now. Um, I'm looking at Judah Smith here thinking he purposely set out to look like James Dobson to Focus on the Family for this Jesus is bringing sexy back sermon. I mean, serious. He looks like a spitting image of uh, James Dobson of the late 80s, early 90s. Or compromise in the context of Scripture. God, of course, is the creator of sex. Ironically, as Christians, we follow Jesus who invented sex, and yet we are mysteriously mute on the subject. I think as followers... Mysteriously mute? Really? <laughs> if you ask me, uh, Christians seem to be obsessed with the topic and have been as long as I've been in the church and can have memory of what's been talked about. Mysteriously mute, really. Words of God, the one who invented sex, we ought to be the first people on the planet to say, this is what healthy sex is all about, and by the way, as Christians, we're having the best sex on the planet. Well, well yeah, see, we got... <laughs> Now, th that would just sound like a great evangelism hook, don't you think? Yeah, we need to be out there explaining to the world, hey, listen, you know, are you dissatisfied Well, in that little area of your life? <laughs> you ought to become a Christian, Yeah, because i got to tell you, best ever. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good reason to become a, you know, a Christ follower is, you know, things ain't going out so well. You're not satisfied? <laughs> Let me tell you, Jesus will fix that right up for you. A few golf claps here on Master Sunday. All right, I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it. Of course, there are many people, the area of sex and sexuality is a very dark place for them. It's a very confusing place. It's an embarrassing place. It's a shameful place. Yeah, almost as embarrassing and shameful as this Easter sermon. The Bible, of course, gives us healthy context for where, where sex is to be enjoyed. Really, you know, it's funny. You know, your text is on the story of Samson and Delilah. Um, 
I just don't recall the applications, you know, from that story being along these lines. Uh, yeah, you know what I'm saying? You can't go to that story and say, hey, and look, at the end of it, you know, there's like some life tip applications that you can, you know, you know, so that you can avoid the pitfalls of uh, poor Samson, you know, who eventually had his eyes gouged out and had, a, you know, an involuntary haircut as a result of, well, his issues. First mentioned in Genesis chapter 2, and obviously the context for healthy, beautiful, satisfying sex is between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. It is there that sex satisfies its fulfilling and in its proper place. When taken outside of God's intended context, there is bondage, there is shame, there is guilt, there is embarrassment. And we want to speak to how does someone who finds themselves in a compromising place in their morality, their sexuality, how do they get set free? My question is, how did you come to the conclusion that this should be the thing you preach about on Easter Sunday? <laughs> I almost prefer the Titanic sermon. At least it was, you know, embarrassingly silly. This is like scratching your head going, huh? Facepalm time is, you know, the thing that comes to my mind. You know, so uh, I'm not going to play any more of this particular sermon because I, quite frankly, am bored to tears when it comes to all these sex, you know, know-how sermons. Of, you know, and of course, you know, you got Driscoll, you know, running around the country, you know, talking about the content of his book, which some have described as the Christian version of the Kama Sutra. And you got, you know, Ed Young, you know, and his sex experiment. Now you had Judah Smith, you know, deciding that we're going to preach about, well, that on Easter Sunday. So, again, though, that's just some of the samples of the sermons that didn't make the cut this year. And, you know, believe me, some of these, you know, at least a couple of them, really close to, to making the cut, but then for editorial reasons and also for, you know, reasons that, uh, you know, I'm trying to pick a spectrum of different type of topics, uh, these guys didn't make the cut. So, anyway, I just want to let you know what you missed. So, I'm sure you're all thankful that you, <laughs> I didn't play that sermon. Anyway... If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We're going to take a little break here, and when we come back, we're going to spend a little bit of time um, taking a look at Dave Barton's so called ministry. We've got some big problems here. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Being good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. 
Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 you're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for fire starter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see here. Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Uh, warning. It's not a good thing when your pastor doesn't preach Christ. Instead, if he's got more important things to talk about or things you can't even figure out what he's talking about, you got a problem. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, uh, I do have some intro music for this next segment here. Uh, listen in. Now, you should recognize this song. This is the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And this is the music that I will be using whenever we uh, do a Dave Barton update. I think it's significant to note here that I, on purpose, chose the Mormon Tabernacle Choir's version of this particular song. Of course, Dave Barton's famous for claiming that Glenn Beck is a Christian. Mm-hmm, yeah, despite the fact that he's a Mormon. Mormons are not Christians. So, yeah, if you would like to uh, hear more of that, I think they have a version of that on YouTube. If you know, Just type in Battle Hymn of the Republic Mormon Tabernacle Choir. So here's the setup for this. Um, recently, the end of March, there was an online simulcast webcast thing that your church could 
tap into. And the name of the um, the event was Rediscover God in America, One Nation Under God. And Dave Barton is one of these guys who claims to be a historian. And um, boy, I got to tell you, as somebody who has a minor in history, there's many things that Dave Barton says that I scratch my head and go, huh? What? Yeah, if, if if he's a historian, then I'm an astronaut, okay? And where he really rubbed me raw is that he basically made claims during this simulcast. It was broadcast to churches all over the country, more churches than the elephant room, okay? Um, he made some very interesting things, uh, statements regarding... God's take on taxation and the minimum wage. And the only thing that that came to my mind is flat-out liar. Okay? There are people who twist God's word. Okay? And then there's people who just make fleeting references to it, never touch any of the content of it, and make wild claims about what's supposedly there. Dave Barton falls into that second category. This is flat-out deceitful. And he needs to clean up his act, because here's the deal. I think there's a lot of merit to the cause that he has attached himself to. But he is discrediting himself, and he's discrediting Christianity, and he's discrediting his cause by engaging in this kind of deception. This is wrong. Let me explain it by having you listen to what Dave Barton recently said at the Rediscover God in America conference. Here's Dave Barton. The Bible is so good on economic issues and specifically on taxation issues that we used to know what kind of taxes were good and what kind of taxes were bad. In this case, it was real easy to prove in the Bible that the Stamp Act tax was an unbiblical tax. That's why we could preach about it. That's why we could have a day of thanksgiving to God when we repealed it. It's not that we're just repealing taxes. We repealed an anti-biblical tax. Now, if you take... So when the Stamp Act was repealed, it was an anti-biblical tax. Really? You care to explain that from Scripture, Dave? that and roll that forward to where we are now and say, well, you know, what kind of taxation issues do we deal with today that the Bible might address? Pretty easy. For 40 years, parties have gone back and forth over the capital gains tax. It really doesn't matter to me what either party says because the Bible is very clear. on Jesus has two entire teachings on the capital gains tax. Jesus has two entire teachings on the capital gains tax. Really? I had no idea, you know, it's, you know, I understand that, you know, I've been known to blog from time to time and therefore that somehow puts me in the category of person who lives in their mother's basement. You know, I may not be the sharpest tool in the drawer, but I don't recall ever reading in anything that is quoted for, as a direct quote from Jesus Christ pertaining to capital gains taxes, Okay. That Dave Barton could somehow deliver this speech without hanging his head in shame tells me there's something seriously wrong with this man's character. And by the way, there were PowerPoint slides that accompanied this particular presentation. So as I'm listening to this, I'm watching the PowerPoint slides that were put up on the screen while he made these claims.
Okay, so here's the deal. The PowerPoint slide says the Bible addresses a capital gains tax. And then it cites Luke chapter 19, verses 13 through 26, and Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 29. Huh. How much would you like to bet me that as soon as I open up my Bible and start reading from Luke chapter 19, verse 13, and read to verse 26, that not once... Not once does Jesus mention the capital gains tax. Let's take a look. Luke chapter 19, verse 13. Jesus speaking, calling the ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. I think it's significant to note the fact that Dave Barton uh, doesn't cite the entire passage. In fact, um, he um, he quotes partway through this. I think it helps create the illusion that Jesus is talking about the capital gains tax. So let's back it up a little bit. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus said, therefore, now you'll notice here, Luke gives us the context of this parable, because Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem and the people wrongly thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So Jesus said, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to call uh, his servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been so faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And I tell you that everyone who has more will be given but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. 
But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Did you hear anything about Jesus laying down a prohibition for a capital gains tax in this passage of Scripture? There isn't a biblical scholar alive or dead who, having read this passage, would come to the conclusion, you know, it's clear here that Jesus has in mind the capital gains tax. And it's clear from this that Jesus is flat out opposed to the concept in principle of a capital gains tax. No. In fact, about the only time Jesus addresses taxes directly is when the Pharisees and Sadducees were in cahoots together and they tried to trick him. And Jesus basically said, show me a denarius. And he held the coin up and said, whose insignia is on this coin? Whose image is this? And they said, Caesar's. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. That is the extent of Jesus' teaching regarding taxes. Jesus never mentions taxes in regard to a capital gains tax. That David Barton in a national forum, on a national conference, to to a group of Christians would somehow mangle God's word to say, basically, hey, the Bible is opposed to a capital gains tax, and quote the parable of the minas, and then cite the, its cross-reference in the Gospel of Matthew, the parable of the talents, as proof that Jesus is a, opposed to a capital gains tax, shows either one of two things, and I can't quite figure out which one it is. Either Dave Barton is a snake oil salesman and he has basically made a career out of schlocky research and unsubstantiatable conclusions, or he is just not capable of, well, coherent, lucid research and properly connecting the dots. As far as I'm concerned, anybody who could, without blushing, say something like this has no business teaching anybody. Again, the cause is too important to have somebody like Dave Barton doing this kind of stuff. It continues, though. Do you know whether Jesus is for or against the capital gains tax? In the same way, we have a progressive income tax. Now, when the founders wrote the Constitution, they wrote what was called a capitation tax system. But in 1913, through the 16th Amendment, we amended the Constitution and said, no, 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 we don't want a capitation tax system. We want a progressive income tax system. Okay, two different systems of taxation. Does the Bible take a position on either position? Yes, absolutely. So, so the Bible takes a position as to whether or not <laughs> to have a, what, a capitation tax system or a progressive income tax. Here's the, are you ready? Here's the, here's the verses. Apparently Leviticus chapter 27 verse 32, this is where God lays down a clear prohibition against progressive income tax, and then he cites Numbers 18, Numbers 28, Numbers 29, and Deuteronomy 14.22. Well, let's take a look at Leviticus chapter 27, verse 32, and see if there is a, a word from God Most High, the Almighty One True God, from the book of Leviticus, saying, Thou shalt not have a progressive income tax. Leviticus 27, 32. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tithe of animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. And by the way, Leviticus 
2732 is right there on his PowerPoint slide. How about Deuteronomy 14:22? You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Deuteronomy 14:22 doesn't say anything about the progressive income tax or God prohibiting it. David Barton is lying. Next. The Bible for or against the progressive income tax? In the same way, this, this past Congress before this last election, for the first time in modern history, made the estate tax a permanent tax. They've been fighting over that about 14 years, pretty viciously back and forth between the parties. But it's finally a, a permanent tax for the first time in our lifetime. I'll tell you, the Bible condemns the estate tax as one of the most immoral taxes that's out there. Really? So the Bible condemns the estate tax as one of the most immoral tax systems out there. And he cites in his PowerPoint slides Proverbs 13.22, 1 Chronicles 28.8, and Ezekiel 46.18. Let's take a look at Proverbs 13.22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Um, I see nothing in here that is a prohibition against an estate tax. It, in fact, it's just talking about a man who leaves an inheritance to his children. It doesn't say anything. Thou shalt not have an estate tax. It doesn't even mention it in principle, let alone in name. How about First Chronicles 28.8, which is on his PowerPoint slide. Now, therefore, in the sight of all of Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. Um, yeah, I'm not seeing any prohibition here against an estate tax um, at all. Not even in principle. Now, the closest verse, <laughs> one that like comes close but still doesn't pass muster, is the Ezekiel 46, verse 18 verse. Listen carefully to this one. The prince shall not make any of the inheritance of the pe- uh, take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. Okay. Now, it, it, this is, by the way, um, this isn't talking about an estate tax per se, and it's not even referring to income. When you read in the Old Testament about inheritance, you must understand the inheritance that is being referred to here is the inheritance of property, the inheritance of the land. When the children of Israel crossed the Jordan and conquered the pagan tribes in Canaan, they received their inheritance, which was land and property. So this is talking about kicking people off of their land, taking their land and their property. An example of a violation of this is found uh, in the Old Testament story where Jezebel um, you know, sees that her husband Ahab is sad because he wants a vineyard and somebody else owns it and he's just sad and despondent. So Jezebel colludes to have false witnesses brought against this man and have and basically have him you know, 
murdered under the pretense that he had blasphemed God. And then when he was gone, you know, she bought up the, you know, the property and uh, confiscated it actually, and then gave it to her husband. That's an example of the violation here. It, it says nothing. None of these verses say anything prohibiting an estate tax. David Barton is lying. I'm sorry, he's not qualified to teach a junior high civics class with this type of bad data. If he's going to cite a Bible verse and say that God prohibits an estate tax, then from a clear text, in context, with unambiguous language, it had better be a clear prohibition from God. Otherwise, David Barton is not only lying, he's blaspheming God by attributing to God things that God never said and never prohibited. You don't mess around with this kind of stuff. We continue. Real simple stuff. There's no reason we shouldn't be saying, hey, look at this that just happened. Here's what the Bible says about this that just happened. The Bible's as clear about that as it is any other moral issues out there because economics can often be moral issues, especially if the Bible takes a stand on, on where these economic issues are. One of the good examples, minimum wage, party's been fighting about that for about 60 years. Jesus has an entire teaching on the minimum wage. No, he doesn't. Jesus does not have an entire teaching on the minimum wage. Folks, we got a problem, okay? And believe me when I tell you, I am no socialist and I'm no liberal. If we are going to put our best arguments forward to defend our freedoms and liberties that are being eroded as America and the world switches from liberal democracy, where human beings have inherent rights axiomatic in themselves, to collectivist states where the individual has no rights and the nation it becomes authoritarian and totalitarian and socialistic and collectivist, if we're going to fight against that, then we need to get rid of yahoos like David Barton. He has no business, no business on any stage telling us, well, the Bible says that the estate tax is wrong and, and that Jesus is against the minimum wage and, and Jesus is, uh-uh. Because what he's saying isn't true. He should be discredited and disqualified because he's discredited himself. This kind of nonsense must stop. The importance of this cause is too great to have it discredited so easily and so badly by a man who is obviously rewriting the Bible and history in order to basically fit his political agenda. That is a problem in and of itself. Dave Barton, shame on you. You need to repent and step down. You have no business talking to us about what God's Word says. It's clear you have no clue. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> 
listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Our final contestant for the worst Easter sermon of 2012 contest. And immediately following today's broadcast, you will be able to vote. Yeah, all you got to do is go to fightingforthefaith.com. It'll be right there at the top of the page. Here we go. Hey, ho. Hey, ho. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, uh, Easter, uh, um, today's Easter um, meditation <laughs> comes to us via Mars Hill Bible Church. This is the church planted by Rob Bell. The, their current head teaching pastor is Shane Hips. Yeah, the uh, name of this thing is called From the Tomb to Womb. From Tomb to Womb. And boy, does he engage in a very slick, sneaky form of Bible twisting here. It's, uh, it's almost as bad as Dave Barton. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, let's kill the music. Um, without any further ado, here's Shane Hip, Mars Bible Church, Grand Rapids, Michigan. His Easter meditation entitled, From Tomb to Womb. Uh, I'll, we'll kind of unpack this as we go. Here we go. Morning, everybody. Morning. How are you? It's Easter. Woo! Thank you for that. That was a delight. Hey, would you, uh, if you would, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 21. It is on page 1001 in your Shed Bible. There are ushers wandering the aisles with stacks of books. Those are Bibles, and uh, you're welcome to have one if you'd like. I'm going to read through this a little bit. 
Uh, I'm going to make a few comments on our passage this morning, and then I'm going to uh, invite Troy and his team of spectacular musicians back on the stage where we will finish out our Resurrection Sunday with uh, a spectacular rendition of several songs that are familiar to you, but of course arranged in ways that are unfamiliar to you, so this is going to be part of Troy's gift to us, and uh, it's how we're going to celebrate. So, you all with me? Great. Uh, I have a dog. Well, I don't have a dog anymore. Dog died when I was, uh, you know, a teenager. But I grew up with a dog. And uh, that was kind of a sad way to start, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> it was not my intention. It was supposed to be kind of a cute story. Now it's a dark story. Um, <laughs> I'm going to recover, though. Watch this. So I grew up with a dog, Yellow Lab. Uh, kind of a mutt of a Yellow Lab. This, uh, this dog had like an extra measure of tongue. It was like the size of my arm. So like big tongue, super fast, probably had some greyhound in her somewhere. And, um, and then she had this, maybe a little bit of pit bull because she had the ability to lock onto things with her jaws with such ferocity that we could actually take a tennis ball uh, that she would, uh, you know, you'd throw it and she'd go get it and bring it back. And then you would try to get the ball out of her mouth to throw it again, which she wanted you to do, but she also really liked holding on to the ball. So there was this, always a tug of war in order to throw the ball. It was very bizarre. And at one point I, I, I figured out, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and beat this dog. So I would lift the, the tennis ball up in the air and the dog would stay attached. Uh, that's how committed this puppy was. And, um, so we named her Jaws. That was literally what her name was. And uh, one of my favorite things about naming a puppy Jaws is when you take a dog out into a park and you unleash the dog, who is an extroverted, friendly dog, which Yellow Labs are, uh, and then there are people far away wandering around in the park, usually the dog would take off and run after them to greet them. And then um, I would, of course, shout the name of the dog, calling the dog to come back. Now, if you are a person wandering around in a park and you see a dog, like a bullet coming after you, and the owner starts going, Jaws, get back here. Jaws, get back here. That's terrifying. And um, it was fun for me, but uh, not so much for the people. And so, and there's also a contradiction there, because then I would say things like, Jaws, come here. He's fine. He won't hurt you. Jaws, get back here. He's fine. He's a very friendly dog. Why would you name him Jaws if he's a friendly dog? That doesn't make sense. Anyway, so that's Jaws. And uh, Jaws had a place called Heaven on Earth, which was a place in Canada about an hour north of Ottawa on Danford Lake, which is where my uncle had a cottage. And we would go there every year. And this dog would be completely unleashed, and she could do whatever she wanted. New sights, sounds, smells. She loved the water, water dog. She loved boat rides, so we'd take her on boat rides. And one of my favorite things I remember vividly was this, this enthusiastic dog. Um, if I were on the dock, let's say, and she was coming back from someone taking her on a boat ride, I could, uh, as the boat was coming towards the dock, maybe 20, 30 yards offshore, I could actually call Jaws and say, Jaws, come here. And the dog would leap out of the boat, <laughs> so excited, and swim for the dock, knowing that uh, she, she really wanted to get to the dock fast. And the most amusing thing was, of course, as she's swimming, very enthusiastically, the boat begins to pass her by. And she's like, what is this? this I got had. And, uh, and she never really figured it out. Like, she would, every time the boat would come near the shore, she's like, I'm going. And she would jump and swim to me. Uh, which I thought was hilarious. And the reason I tell you this story is because it reminds me, it's the one image that comes to my mind over and over again when I read our passage this morning. And we'll get to that. So, 
one of the things that happened after Jesus was raised from the dead, he died, dead for three days, empty tomb, comes out of the tomb, and then he begins making various appearances. So he goes and visits various people, uh, mostly the disciples, and he does certain things, says certain things, and we have some of those accounts here, and this is one of them. So I'm going to read to you. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were, un they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon heard him say this, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. So literally the Greek says he puts his clothes on because he was naked and jumped into the water. <laughs> the other, that's funny. Um, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coal with uh, burning coals where there were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've caught. Simon Peter climbed back aboard into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 to be exact. But even with so many fish in the net, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, did the same with the fish. Now, this was the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So what you have here is Peter, who is just like Jaws, sees the Lord and enthusiastically dives into the lake. By the way, he first, though, he's totally naked, apparently. He decides to get dressed before he's going to go swimming. Okay, I want to point something out. So far, I mean, okay, it's, it's a, he's preaching from a biblical text, but watch what he does as you're inclined to do, right? So he, he, he jumps into the lake, and then by the time he gets to the shore, he gets back in the boat to help. What is going on there? I, I, I have this image of Peter as like my dog, like just just like impulsively enthusiastic, right? This is Peter. He's like, ah, it's the Lord, let's go, woo! And then I'm sure he's swimming and the boat is passing him by, and he's going, I'm not sure I thought through this. <laughs> So uh, this, is, this is a beautiful thing about Peter, is it not? This incredible modal focus, this incredible energy of that's what I want. I'm not going to think about anything else other than getting it. And it happens to be his master, this beloved relationship he had with his master and uh, who's risen and Peter is enthusiastic and going after him. And I hope that image stays with us as we all reflect on our own relationship to that master. Um, but there's uh, something else that I want to focus on in our, in our passage this morning, and, and more broadly, the post-resurrection experiences that the disciples had. Uh, so let me do this. How many of you have seen this book before? Have you heard of this book before? It's called Heaven is for Real. Anybody heard of this? Yeah, okay, good. It's, uh, it's like a massive bestseller right now. It's been on the best-selling list for 
35 years or something insane. It's a very, very big, hot-selling book. Uh, it's the story, I haven't read it, but I'm told it's the story of a little boy who was in the hospital, came down with some kind of an illness. He died. He went. Now, I'm going to point something out here. You should already be going, what's going on? He's going to use the metaphor to interpret, well, basically, he's going to interpret the scripture in light of the metaphor. That is going to be a big problem. Went to heaven, met Jesus, uh, met his grandfather, whose grandfather died before he was born, had several other encounters that there's no way he could have known certain things, came back to life and told his story of being in heaven for a, a period of time. So there's that book. Then there's this other book. Um, this one's called 90 Minutes in Heaven. It's a story of a man who got into a car accident um, and also died briefly. And during his experience, he had uh, met Jesus, saw heaven, got to experience all kinds of things. And one of the things that happened was he then came back, had this brutal, difficult, awful recovery that, because of his experience, gave him energy and hope to continue his recovery. So you got 90 minutes in heaven. You got this other book. Uh, this one's 23 minutes in hell. Uh, so you get no equal opportunity. Uh, this is um, the, the guy here uh, tells a story of dying and, uh, as the title implies, spent 23 minutes in hell. And he tells all kinds of uh, horrible stories of being tormented and pain and suffering and all the things you want to try to avoid, if you can, for eternity. Um, so that's 23 Minutes in Hell. Then you go back to, you got another one. Uh, this is uh, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. Story of a man and his son, a young son. They uh, got in a massive car accident. Son ended up in a hospital, spent two months in a coma. And during that time, he went to heaven, met Jesus, had all kinds of wonderful experiences. And they come back to tell us the story. Now, this is just four books. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of books just like this that tell you story after story after story of the first-hand account of what happens after you die. People who died for a little bit, they come back, they want to write a story, tell everybody about it. And the most amazing thing is we buy these books by the truckload. Hugely, hugely popular genre of book. Incidentally, the only one I could, there's only, I can only find one on hell, um, which is interesting. I don't know what that means. Um, perhaps books about going to hell don't sell very well. Um, <laughs> Or maybe they're just not as many people going to hell these days. I don't really know. Um, haven't been there, so I don't know. Anyway, so you have this fascinating phenomenon. This is, I, and I'm not here to tell you, I haven't read any of these books. I'm not here to tell you whether or not they're good or bad or right or wrong or true or not true. I have no idea. I trust that whatever they experienced is what they experienced. I don't think they have any reason to lie to us. Um, and uh, it's up to you to decide what to make of all that. What I find interesting is how much our culture loves this stuff. How absolutely preoccupied and fascinated and riveted we are by wanting to know what happens after this life ends. And it makes some sense, right? I mean, presumably, you, you have a limited life here, and whatever's next goes on for quite some time. Now, I want to I key you in on something here. He's engaging in deconstructionism. Okay, this is a, a sneaky, tricky argument that he's setting you setting up here. The trap has already been set. It's just a matter of when he's going to trigger it. Everything's set up for the trap because he's drawn you in by, oh yeah, I, I'm familiar with that 
those stories about people go to heaven and hell. And, and yeah, people are fascinated about what happens after this lifetime. Okay, watch what he does here. He's about ready to set and spring the trap. Here we go. Probably eternity, right? So you, you might want to know, if I'm only going to get 70 years here, I'd like to know what happens afterwards, right? So this is sort of what goes on. So people die, have an experience of the afterlife, they open the curtain, let us peek behind, and then they come back, write stories about it, right? This is interesting for another reason as well. It's interesting because Jesus, as some of you know, also died. Uh, and he was really, really dead, like not 23 minutes dead. He was like three days dead, right? Really dead. And he rose again, came back from the grave, came back to life. Now, Jesus, just like these hundreds of other people who died and then came back, Jesus really got a full tour, I assume, of the place, whatever's out there after. And when he came back, do you know what he said about the afterlife? Do you know what Jesus said? You know what the title of his book would be when he came back, when he was talking about heaven and hell, what he was interested in us knowing? You know what he said? He said absolutely nothing. Zip. Zero. Nada. That's Spanish. I'm, I'm fluent. Um, he didn't have anything to say about the afterlife. Okay, now, this is a misrepresentation and a twisting of Jesus' teaching. Notice he's saying no, after Jesus came back, he had nothing to say about the afterlife. Question, who was Jesus? He was God in human flesh. Do you think that it was a mystery to Jesus as to what happens in the afterlife? Not at all. You remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, you had the one of the thieves who was on, on you know, he, had, there was, he was crucified between two thieves. One of them was despising him and hurling insults at him. The other one ended up rebuking the other one and saying, be quiet. He, he, we're getting what we deserve. This man's done nothing wrong. And then he looks to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does Jesus say to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. Wow, apparently Jesus knew what was going to happen on the other side of death, so much so that he can say with confidence to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. But then here's the other thing. Do you think that Jesus in his earthly ministry ever talked about what happens after death? Yes, he talked a lot about it. But what you'll notice what Shane Hips is doing here. He's narrowing the discussion to what did Jesus say about the afterlife after he came back that's recorded in the Gospels? Well, nothing. He said nothing. <gasps> well, that says something, that he said nothing. No, it doesn't, because it's not a mystery to Jesus. He's God in human flesh. And he, prior to his death, talked about, well, what happens after death as if he's the one in charge of what happens to us after death. So when Jesus died, he didn't get a tour of what happens on the other side as if this was all some, somehow a big mystery to him that had finally been revealed. What Shane Hips is doing here 
is engaging in a form of deconstructionism in order to deconstruct a particular emphasis on the teaching of the of the resurrection so that we can basically pour out its power and meaning and he can pour into it some other new meaning and he's doing so in a very clever deceitful and postmodern kind of way Jesus Christ the son of god died for 3 days he knows we want to know what's going on after we die. Why wouldn't he come back and write a book that's called Heaven is for Real? Um, he talked extensively about what happens to us after we die pr prior to his crucifixion and, and uh, resurrection. It's called the New Testament, sir. He has the authority to do it. He had the experience. He knows what was there more than any of these other people who wrote books about it. Why on earth would he not tell us Something, I mean, just a little something. Do you know what he said? He said a lot prior to his death and resurrection. This is a deceitful argument. Here's, I'm going to give you just a sampling now. I'm going to paraphrase in the interest of time. Just a sampling of the things Jesus actually said after his resurrection. Here you go. Here are a few. First, he came back and he said, Hey, uh, been dead for a few days. Saw what was after there. Uh, go ahead and make students of me. Um, uh, also, go ahead and just share the good news. And the good news, by the way, is that you can be free in this life. Then he goes on to say, um, peace be with you, and I'm hungry. Um, he says, receive the Holy Spirit, forgive other people of their sins. He says, it's me, really, you can touch my side, it's me. He says, um, the fishing is better on the right. He says, uh, hey, we, let's eat. Um, he says, feed my sheep. Now make sure you follow me. And then last he says, and no more worrying about the fate of others. Follow me. So apparently Jesus says absolutely nothing about life after death. Nothing. Not a single thing. No. He said a ton about life after death. And all of it was prior to his death and resurrection. See, what he's doing here at this point is limiting the conversation to only the things that Jesus said after he was raised from the dead. When you read the gospel accounts, when you read the eyewitness testimony of the life of Jesus, where is the bulk of the didactic teaching before the resurrection or after? And didactic, by the way, means teaching, teaching. You know, where, where, is, where, where is the didactic sections in the gospel? The bulk of it like 98% of it, all of it's prior to the crucifixion and resurrection. All of the teaching takes place prior to. So he somehow, this, this is somehow some amazing insight that he's had because Jesus didn't say anything after his death. That, you know, and so, and again, you'll notice the technique was he's interpreting the scripture in light of his metaphor. His metaphor somehow sets the interpretive key Oh, we've got all these books out there. What happens after death? And so Jesus would have been curious. And how come he didn't say anything? And the fact that he didn't say anything, well, that proves a lot. It says a lot. N no, it doesn't. This is an argument from silence. And he's pouring into that silence things that are not in Scripture. Conclusions that cannot be justified when we look at the whole of what Jesus said. He focuses instead on things like following him and eating. Apparently, he's hungry a lot. Okay? Fascinating. Baffling. He could have had a bestseller. 
Why? On Earth? Really, he could have had a bestseller. They had bestsellers back then in first century Palestine. Earth, did he come back and not say a word? This is, this is just deceitful. This is what's so extraordinary about our passage this morning, the post-resurrection passage. I've been dead for three days, and now I'm ready to issue forth my wisdom. I went to the beyond the beyond, and here's what I have for you. You guys should fish on the right side, and then we should eat. You want some breakfast? Because I don't know about you, but I'm hungry. What's so extraordinary about our passage is how unbelievably ordinary the story is. It's not even really a miracle. I mean, it's, it's, uh, he, he fed 5,000, multiplied loaves and fishes. He walked on water, healed blind people. He did all these incredible things. This one isn't even a miracle. It's basically like good fishing advice. He's like, I think you should try that part of the lake. And they're like, oh, yeah, it worked. Look at that. I mean, that could be luck. That's not even... And then he just coals, fish, bread. Let's eat. That's it. There's something about the resurrection. What the resurrection teaches us, what Jesus wants us to know about the resurrection, about this miracle of the resurrection, is that the most amazing thing about what happens in the resurrection is that you get to have this life. That it points you back to this life, not the next life. Not really. So the resurrection points us back to this life, not the next. Even though Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. Jesus' resurrection is the thing that Paul points to in 1 Corinthians 15 as the proof that we're going to be raised from the dead and that we have an eternal hope in Christ. This is demonic, what this man is doing. Now, I recognize everybody in, who wrote these books wants us to focus on what happens next. And we all buy it hook, line, and sinker. We love to hijack the agenda of Jesus and, and create around our own anxieties, fears, hopes, and dreams. He's the one hijacking the biblical agenda, using a deceitful argument by suppressing evidence. The thing that matters most, which doesn't seem to matter to Jesus. What matters to Jesus is this life. That's why his... So Jesus doesn't care about the life to come, even though he said, I am the resurrection and the life. If a man believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. So Jesus doesn't care about anything except for this life. He's not quoting those passages. He's basically set up a formula so all of that gets excluded so that he can make these claims. Post-resurrection appearances are so corporeal, embodied, physical. The, the, they're about eating and walking. And this is, this is what Jesus is about. Pay attention to the ordinary miracle of this existence. You want to know the message of the resurrection? The good news of the resurrection is this life is amazing. That's the good news of the resurrection. Not that we're going to be raised again.
because he's raised. The first fruits of those who have been raised from the dead, as the Apostle Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15. It, it, the, the, ultimately, the great news about the resurrection is, wow, we've got a great life here and now. Way to go. Wow, that's just profound. This life is amazing. Does anybody else find this bizarre that Jesus did not talk about the afterlife? No, I don't, because he did talk about the afterlife a lot in the didactic sections of the Gospels. He wants us to focus on the gift, the first miracle. It's almost like Jesus is saying, if you cannot appreciate... It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Jesus isn't saying, he didn't say any of this, but it's as if he's saying this. The gift of this life. What on earth makes you think you'll be able to appreciate the gift of the next life? Come back here. I'm coming to tell you. Follow me. And the, the last line is one of the most interesting. He says, the last line in John 21, 22. Peter comes to Jesus and says to him, uh, you know, Jesus starts having a conversation, basically says, look, things aren't going to go the way that you want them to go for you going to be some hard times ahead. Peter's response is not that he's interested in what that means. He says, really, huh, what about this guy? And he points over to John and says, what will happen to John? And you know what Jesus says? He says, what is that to you? What business is that of yours what happens to him? Your job is to follow me. That's the only thing I want you thinking about. Jesus gives this incredibly stinging rebuke to Peter, basically saying, I know you're caught up in what happens to everybody else in the future, and I'm telling you, stop it. That's my job, not yours, so stop it. Your job is to follow me. Wow. Wow. Wow, yeah, because immediately before that, in the Gospel of John chapter 20, um, it says this, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand in my, in, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed is uh, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. And Jesus, over and again, talks about having eternal life. Why is Shane Hips basically trying to destroy the biblical teaching of the transcendent and eternal life, and somehow focusing everything on the here and the now here. Why is he deconstructing Jesus' teaching and excluding out of this sermon the full body of what Jesus taught? Pay attention to this life. Pay attention. Eat, enjoy. Pay attention to the gift of the ordinary things because when this body returns to the dust, those ordinary things vanish. 
and they are to be enjoyed and celebrated. We are to be grateful for every single moment we have while we're here because it doesn't come back. And it is a gift, even when it doesn't feel like a gift, it is a gift. And the reason you know it's a gift is because you... So, so the message of Easter is enjoy every moment that you got here because it doesn't come around again. It sounds like it just pouring out the biblical meaning of resurrection, what Jesus' resurrection actually means in light of the full counsel of God's word. He didn't pay anything for it. came to us. So when you leave here today and you go and have your Easter lunch... Understand that that act of eating and the, the enjoyment of that meal, whatever it is, that's living the resurrection. So lunch today, that's living the resurrection. Uh, here in the now, just to em embrace it. Pay attention to the ordinary and how extraordinary this ordinary thing is. This is one of the reasons that we do this walk for water. What could be more ordinary than water? What could be more ordinary than walking? It's connected to the body. It's the reason we as a community support these activities. This walk for water is practicing the ordinary message of the resurrection. That this life matters. That the heaven you're looking for, the freedom you long for, is here now, not just there then. So that's one of the messages of this post-resurrection appearance, this exceptionally unexpected, subversive message that, that is, frankly, even subversive to most Christians today. <laughs> Who are, we're all... Yeah, it's subversive because it's deceitful and a suppressing of the full counsel of what God's Word teaches regarding the resurrection and what it means. You're ignoring all of the passages that give us the theological interpretation of the resurrection so that you can pour into its meaning whatever you want to put into it, not what, it, not what it's really about. I'm so fixated on what happens later. Now, there's another message here. There's another meaning here. The notion that the resurrection is this very much an embodied experience. The resurrection actually is a hearkening back to the Incarnation. The Word became flesh, it says in the beginning of John's Gospel, and at the end, the Word became flesh again. It comes back to the body. The tomb that Jesus is placed in is an incredible thing because that tomb actually comes to serve as a womb. What? The tomb serves as a womb? Which of, the, which of the disciples call it that, huh? You just gave it that meaning, but no New Testament apostle gave it that meaning. The very thing that was meant to contain and hold death became the incubator for life. The tomb became the womb. Do you understand that? I disagree. No New Testament author, none of Jesus' disciples ever said such nonsense. Where did you get this mystical nonsense from? You also realize that this is not just a historical fact. 
The resurrection is not just a historical fact. It is an ongoing operational principle in life. Really? Which of the New Testament authors say this? That in all of our lives, in this life, while we yet live, there is an opportunity to experience new life after death. The things that we care most about in life, the things that we're so attached to, our jobs, our friends, our family, our children, our parents, our health, our wealth, all these things, all of them by nature are returning to the dust. All of them by nature are going to die. All of them by nature will find their way to a tomb. And the good news of the resurrection is that that tomb becomes again a womb. So whatever it is you face the loss of, that tomb will one day become a womb and give birth to something new in your life. That is the principle of the resurrection. So what are you facing the loss of? You know, you know, have you lost your job? Don't worry, the tomb will become a womb. That's the principle of resurrection working in your life. Aside from being completely false, I mean, this is, there's, this is not good news at all. I mean, this is just banal and actually insultingly stupid. Resurrection, and it happens now in this very day, not just 2,000 years ago. It happens in an ongoing way. Uh, in 2008, the economy took a massive hit. I don't know if you were aware of that. And so the economy went into the womb phase so that it can give birth again, it's using the principle of resurrection. Um, many people lost their jobs, and I had lots of conversations with people about their jobs being lost. And months have since gone by since that happened. And every one of them came to me with that feeling of, I've entered the tomb. The thing that I needed most, that I loved, that I cared about, is now dead. And as the months went by... I, I cannot believe how bad this is. I, the principle of the resurrection was operating. And that tomb became a womb, and it gave new life to something. Based on this interpretation, Jesus' resurrection from the grave just is meaningless. I mean, I mean, what's the point of having a New Testament that tells us what the resurrection means? What's the point of having that if you're not going to read it and actually learn from it, and you're just going to make up your own meaning? Again, none of the disciples say this, and the disciples throughout the New Testament point to Jesus' resurrection and tell us things that are far different than this, that give us true hope. Hope that we will actually bodily rise again from the grave someday because Jesus did. Solving our real problem, the wages of our sin being death. But this guy, I, I don't know what theology he's holding to, but it's not Christian by any stretch of the imagination. It's utterly vacuous. And I mean, this is unbelievable. And many of them have come up to me since then and said, you know what? The most amazing thing happened. That was a blessing in disguise. That loss of that job was actually something that created some space for new things to happen to me that I wouldn't have ever thought could happen that I actually like better. It's actually working better for me. See, the principle of the resurrection is at work now and you finding a better job. Now than it was then and I, didn't, I couldn't even imagine it being better. It doesn't have to be a job. It can be a relationship. 
that maybe is coming to an end. It could be. Is the is the principle of the resurrection working in your relationships? Are they going to go into the womb phase? Be the health of your body, the functioning of your body, may not be working right anymore. Could be your kids going off to college. All of these things come with a sense of loss, with a sense of grief, with a sense of tomb-like quality, that something comes to an end and there is sadness and sorrow and grief. And yet, if you wait long enough, the tomb, by nature, it is the, the operating principle of the resurrection in our lives, the tomb, by nature, is transformed into a womb and new life comes. New life comes. That's a guarantee. Now... Does anybody here know what I'm talking about? Can I get an amen? No. Can I get a you ain't lying, preacher? You're lying through your teeth. <laughs> Can I get a I ain't mad at you? No? You are mad at me then. I did not hear an enthusiastic I ain't mad at you. That's all right. I'll get over it. So, as we close out this service, I'm going to invite Troy and his wonderful band of brethren and Sistrin to come up and lead us in a series of hymns, songs, and praises. And I want us to stand now and feel the body and fill the body with air and oxygen and sing out loud because this is what it means to be alive. And so, if you will, let's pray together and then we will sing some songs. Lord Jesus... No, you don't get to pray. Sorry. That was just totally blasphemous. I mean, that's an argument for unbelief, not belief. And it purposely ignores and suppresses what the Bible says about Jesus' resurrection and what it means. Let me just read two passages to you. Just two. Um, the first is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'll start at verse 8. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ. <clears throat> that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let me give you another passage. The Apostle Peter. Peter, the, the one that, uh, well, Shane Hips referred to like a, you know, a Labrador retriever. Here's what he writes in his first epistle. First, uh, first Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Hmm. All of that tied to Christ's resurrection. Shane could have preached any of that. Instead, he chose to engage in postmodern, deconstructive mind games and silly attempts to try to deny the clear teaching of Scripture. And at the end of it, you're, he left you with nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing to hope for. Well, the resurrection, you know, things die in your life. Don't worry, they, they go into the womb, they'll come back. The, the principle of resurrection is somehow playing out in your life. Scripture doesn't teach any of that nonsense. Scripture doesn't teach any of that nonsense. And Shane Hip has proven Scripture to be right when it describes false teachers as waterless rain clouds. Because that's what he is, a waterless rain cloud. Taking away hope where the Scripture so clearly gives it. Purposely misapplying and suppressing the biblical passages that talk about what Jesus Christ has done for us and what the resurrection means. Absolutely abysmal. Truly abysmal. Well, that's it. I told you we would ha we had 10 parts to uh, this whole segment that we did on Fighting for the Faith. Began a week ago on Monday and concludes today. One week of good Easter sermons. One week of all of the sermons for you to consider to vote on for the worst Easter sermon of the year. I don't think the contrast could be starker if I had tried to make it more stark. It can't be done. It's the difference between light and darkness, between truth and error, between salvation and damnation. That's the difference. Well, now that we're signing off, I think it's important for you to know you have the ability to vote on who you believe should be crowned the pastor who preached the worst Easter sermon of 2012. Head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, right there at the top of the website. For the next week, there will be um, a, a way for you to vote, cast your vote, and then we'll tally them up 
Um, we're going to keep going through next week. So there'll be a week from now plus Saturday and Sunday. So in a week and a couple of days, we will announce who the winner is. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until Monday, may God richly bless you. And the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.